Welcome to the Russian Rulers Podcast, Episode 63, Road Trip to Destruction. Last episode, we talked about how Nicholas II made one bad decision after another, alienating millions of people and fueling the fires of revolution. But another major debacle was to occur that sparked the largest revolt since the time of Pugachev during the reign of Catherine the Great. Sergei Vite had overseen the expansion of the Russian railroad system, especially the Trans-Siberian Rail Line. This caused a great migration of people and businesses throughout the far eastern parts of Russia. Resources, some of which are still being discovered today, were being exploited to the benefit of the upper classes on the backs of the poorer people. This caused growing tensions between the haves and the have-nots. This divide in Russia was immense, and the tensions enormous. The drive for resources also put Russia in conflict with a number of countries. Since the time of Peter the Great, Russia yearned for warm water ports. To the south, they had the port of Sevastopol, but lost it during the Crimean War. To the north, there was Archangel, with only a few months of ice-free navigation available. Vladivostok was a newly acquired port to the Far East along with Port Arthur, but that port was viewed as a threat by an aspiring world power, Japan. Japan had been spending much of its resources on making it a powerful militaristic nation. Its leadership was building its navy to become one of the most powerful in the world due to its modernization policy. This was the exact opposite of the Russian navy run by the greedy and incompetent brother of the late Tsar Alexander III, Grand Duke Sergei. Sergei was convinced that there was no need to update his navy as he compared it to his enemy to the south, Turkey. Their navy, though, was one of the most decrepit in all of Europe. On top of it, Russia's expansion was limited in the south due to British interests, so the honest comparison should have been with the Japanese to the east. Sergei thought that the Japanese were lesser peoples, not worthy of comparison to the Christian and obviously superior Russians. The Japanese were considered the, quote, yellow monkeys by the Tsar's court, as well as by the emperor himself. This smugness was in direct opposition to the world's opinion at the time, as well as the advice of the Minister of Finance, Sergei Vite. He knew that Russia was terribly unprepared for hostilities, and that a war so far from St. Petersburg and Moscow was totally unwinnable. He, more than anyone, understood supply line issues and the terrible disadvantage Russia was going to place itself in if it decided to go to war with Japan. Well, as I mentioned at the uh, Facebook fan page, a Russian Rulers History Podcast, it is my intention to extend this podcast series when I'm done with Putin to cover events and people throughout Russian history beyond its rulers, so my coverage here of the Russo-Japanese War will be cursory at best. It is an intensely complex war, although short. Some of the stupidity of the Russian generals, especially those who were in St. Petersburg, is astonishing, as was the bravery of the common foot soldiers. Podcast I recommend here, The History According to Bob, has a great series on this war. Definitely worth a listen. 
with the Grand Duke Sergei heading the Russian Navy, things were to never work out right from the start. Incompetent in every sense of the word, Sergei was oblivious to the state of the Navy. Peter the Great must have looked down on his old Navy. He started with tears in his eyes. He knew that the greatness of Russia lied in its ability to be a naval power. Now, Russia's was that of a second or third-class nation, not one capable of competing with the world-class navies. Before discussing the event leading up to the war, it's necessary to continue to discuss the conditions of both militaries a bit more. Japan was highly industrialized and ready to expand its empire post-Admiral Perry's entry into the port of Tokyo in 1854. Its communication lines were short, whereas Russia relied on the single-railed Trans-Siberian Railroad for its land travel, and the incredible multi-ocean 18,000 nautical mile trip for its fleet stationed in the Baltic to get to the Sea of Japan. It is no wonder that Sergei Vite and a number of other advisors were so adamant when they begged the Tsar not to go ahead with hostilities against the Japanese. You might wonder, with all that advice, what was Nicholas thinking when he decided to go to war? In his narrow-minded world, he had decided that he needed, to, he needed the war to revive Russian pride that had been taking such a beating since the Crimean War debacle. He truly believed that war was the way to have the people support his regime again. As he would soon find out, it would have the exact opposite effect. The stupidity of going to war is often easy to see in hindsight, but when you have the number of signs that this war was unwinnable, this makes Nicholas's decision to go forward unexplainable or blitheringly stupid. How a decision to go into an unwinnable war be so enthusiastically jumped into is really unfathomable to me. But the advice of the Grand Dukes guided or maybe bullied Nicholas into making this monumental mistake. Japan had just won a series of battles against China and was given many Chinese territories as a result, such as Formosa, the Pescadores Islands, and the Liatung Peninsula, as spelled out in the Treaty of Shimonoski. The European powers in the region, carving up parts of China as well, forced the Japanese to give up the Liatung Peninsula, and Russia pounced on that by getting a 25-year lease from China on a port in the southern part of the peninsula, namely Port Arthur. Sergei Vite was furious as it flagrantly disregarded the existing treaties with China. Before the war started, though, in 1903, Vite resigned from the government, but some say he was forced out due to a scandalous relationship he had had with a married Jewish woman, who he eventually did marry. Now, with no strong voice of reason in St. Petersburg, the greedy merchants and advisors to the Tsar could continue with their plans to exploit the newly acquired territories. Japan viewed this as an act of aggression and a threat to their national security, so they prepared for war. When we talk of war, typically both sides prepare for it beforehand, but not here. Japan skillfully was modernizing their military, preparing to take on one of the big boys, despite being vastly outnumbered. They knew what they were up against and planned carefully. The Russians were arrogant bullies who believed in the divine right to win, thinking that their mere presence would win the day as they 
with a Romanov Tsar at the helm, were God's chosen warriors, and that they couldn't lose. With the Russians' attitude apparent, the Japanese knew that negotiating a settlement was going to be a waste of time. So, on February 8, 1904, in what has been called Japan's original Pearl Harbor attack, they attacked the Russian fleet at Chinulpo, later known as Inchon, followed the next day by attacking Port Arthur. This devastated the unsuspecting Russian Navy stationed there. It was the first in a series of humiliating defeats for the Russian Colossus. The little nation of Japan was making a fool out of the Russian military. Battle after battle went to the Japanese. But, lest you think that everything was easy as the Japanese had vastly superior weapons, think again. The Russian soldiers fought incredibly bravely, and in spite of horrible decisions by their field generals, many of the battles not only could have, but should have been won by the Russians. Still, even if many of the land battles would have went the Russian way, the next blunder sealed the war's fate and would quickly lead to the humiliating Treaty of Portsmouth, arranged by U.S. President Theodore Roosevelt. Considering what was about to occur, it is only through the skillful and masterful skills of the now rehabilitated Sergei Vite that Russia wasn't even more humiliated. But, kind of getting ahead of myself here. In reading about the journey of the Russian Navy from its ports in the Baltic Sea towards the Pacific and its destiny at the Battle of the Tsushima Strait, I am dumbstruck at the idea that the Russian Navy could pull anything of this magnitude off and I would have been joined by many contemporaries in Russia's government and from people all over the world. Now, the Japanese had over 150,000 ground troops ready for battle, whereas the Russians had 80,000 there, with another 50,000 within striking distance. What the Russians did have was a huge defensive positional advantage. While a siege was begun on the brave soldiers at Port Arthur, a relief flotilla was coming and not coming and coming, then not, but finally was. Tsar Nicholas was in a quandary. He knew that sending his navy halfway across the world was risky. People like Sergei Vite and a number of his military advisors told him to give up the war at this point and ask for a truce. Others, like the Grand Dukes, his uncles, were sure that the navy could handle the obviously inferior Japanese. After much vacillation, which was so typical of Nicholas, the creaky Russian Navy headed out from its ports in October of 1904, led by, and I'm probably going to pronounce this incorrectly, but work with me here, Admiral Zinovy Rozdezvensky, so Rozdezvensky, who viewed the mission personally as absolutely suicidal. While on its way, before it had even reached the Atlantic Ocean, the Russian fleet fired upon a group of small boats it feared were Japanese torpedo boats due to a paranoic fever spread throughout the flotilla. Unfortunately, the boats were British shipping, fishing vessels, excuse me, which almost precipitated a war with Great Britain, who was already kind of a tepid ally of the Japanese. Onward the ships went after Nicholas paid 65,000 pounds in damages to the British. From the north through the South Atlantic, around Africa's Cape of Good Hope towards Korea. While the flotilla was steaming on, 
the battle for Port Arthur was turning toward the Japanese. The commander of the Russian army in the field was General Kuropatkin, a rather able military man whose orders were constantly being countermanded by the incompetence in St. Petersburg, with Nicholas II actually sticking his nose in as well. With little hope of holding on to the heavily fortified city, the Russian garrison surrendered in January 1905. Over 15,000 brave Russian men died, with the Japanese losing over 57,000. Once Port Arthur fell, the Japanese rushed their freed-up troops to engage the Russians in Manchuria. Here, the Battle of Mukden was on. Two weeks of ferocious fighting went on near the South Manchurian Railroad. Due to horrible supply problems again caused by incompetence in St. Petersburg, and exhausted by the casualties, reaching 70,000 men, the Russian army retreated on February 25, 1905. Delusional beliefs that the war could still be won, despite the whole world thinking otherwise, the Tsar and his military entourage waited for the arrival of the Russian navy. Admiral Rozhdensvensky made his way toward the Tsushima Strait with hopes of making it to Vladivostok. But before he could get there, he was met by the Japanese fleet led by Admiral Togo. The battle started and ended on May 25, 1908, excuse me, 1905, with the Japanese Navy lining up opposite the Russians, separated by 7,000 yards of water. The Japanese opened fire and began to pick off one Russian ship after another. There was absolutely nothing the Russians could do as their guns only had a range of 4,000 yards. Of the 21 ships that made it to Tsushima, only three made it to the port of Vladivostok. The devastation was complete. Nicholas II was on a picnic with his family celebrating his ninth year on the throne when he heard the news. He was devastated and must have realized what this did to his prestige with his people. Or did he? He was quoted to have said that the loss was God's will, as he would always say when things went poorly. No personal responsibility was taken, as somehow it was all out of his hands and only in God's. What came next was to shake the foundations of the Tsarist regime and hasten the end of the Romanov dynasty. Next time, we review the events leading to and the time of the Russian Revolution of 1905. And now for reading from Russian history. It's a continuation of our uh, reading from uh, the poem by Kershikov called the Rosiad, which was written in 1779. When it saw Moscow fall asleep, its swords abandoned. The trembling moon did dare to peek out from the clouds. It raised open eyes and smoldering with hatred. From river Volga like some dreadful storm erupted. Having disturbed the peace, the horde tore off its feathers, and moved by anger, stirred itself, and sighted riot. And there began its head and shoulders to raise up, and Russia to oppress as it had done before. Again this dreadful beast had entered Russian cities, in his train bringing murder, violence, and plunder. One hand a sword held, but the other clanking irons. Walls crumbled all around, and steppe and forests suffered. On the command of perfidious 
Sumbeka, the rivers of Kazan, flowed rich with blood of Russians. Bearing a torch, the scourge of evil now unleashed, in fury put the flame to Moscow's settlements. Chastisement, blade in hand, did enter Christian dwellings. And martyrs' blood soon cried out to the heavens. The sadness, cries, and groans of orphans but remained. Their fatherland turned just to the dream, this lamentation. Sad was the capital, for Moscow bent her head, and sadness like the night had shaded her face over. Grief crept into her heart, and sorrow found her lips. The splendid places which surrounded her mourned also, and letting loose her hair, misfortune strolled the city. Her eyes cast downward, all into despair conducted. In agony she beat her chest and cried profusely. The streets knew triumph, not nor did the dwellings peace. In grassy vales just grief, and groves reigned naught but moaning. Among the city's throngs no wedding songs were heard. All were arrayed in garb of sadness as orphans. Inside God's temples all that could be heard was wailing consumed by a disease to which there was no end. Moscow then bore resemblance unto stagnant water, which suddenly deprived of movement or freshness, turns dull, grows fetid, and breeds poison of itself. Its people, cast into despair, pursued and weary, were like volcanic fire in Etna blazing suddenly, which tosses up thick clumps of trees and wooded hillocks. From mountain summit to the very heavens, the people have bestirred. Then in their violent fury, from just a spark of brazen rising, burst to blazing. It swept through the streets and burned its marketplaces. And Moscow saw the glow of woeful consequences. Well, I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Don't forget to join us at the Russian Rulers Podcast Facebook Fan Club which has had some really lively discussions recently. And there, you can ask a question, make a suggestion, or leave a comment. But as always, Das Vidanya Ispasiba Bolshoya.